0: You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, President of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Well, I'm delighted to have some new guests this time on this edition of The Zeitgeist, and uh, I want to let them introduce themselves first. And I'm going to turn to Uh, Elisaveta. Elisaveta, can you uh, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I'm a research associate. I have been working for the Institute for Didactics of Democracy, which is a research institute in the field of civic education um, based at the Leibniz University of Hanover uh, for four years now. Um, And many of my research topics actually are somehow connected with the question of identity and social division. Uh, My last project focused on conspiracy theories that came up uh, throughout the pandemic. So this was a really interesting topic to focus on during the last years.
0: Okay. Uh, Elizaveta Fiersova from Hanover. And Dylan, how about you?
2: Hi, everybody. My name is Dylan. I use he, him pronouns. I'm a social worker based in Detroit, Michigan. I work at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor as a DEI program manager at the School of Social Work. And uh, my my areas of focus have historically been um, within refugee and immigrant populations, particularly uh, Spanish-speaking and French-speaking populations. And so my wheelhouse is very much in secondary education and making sure that students that are coming here from other countries as recent immigrants, for example, do indeed graduate from high school? And if they matriculate into college, how do we create specific and specialized um, intervention strategies for them so that they matriculate out? And most recently, in terms of social divisions, because everything with social work is concerned social divisions, I just completed a fellowship with the Western State Center based in Oregon, um, where we studied far-right nationalist violence and how um, how those those groups are organizing to recruit young people into their ranks. And so going to, going to Chemnitz was a very um, needed experience for a lot of reasons to think about how our social divisions being perpetuated um, both in the States and abroad, and how can we create cross-cutting interventions to, to mitigate those effects.
0: And so to put all of this in context, now I'm gonna to turn to my colleague, uh, Liz Hoteri. Uh, Liz, tell us what we're doing here.
3: Thanks, Jeff. So together with my, our colleague, Susanna Deeper, um, I've been working on the project, Social Divisions and Questions of Identity in the U.S. and Germany um, for several years now. Um, unfortunately, we were, like everyone, um, delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and our project looks at um, sister cities in the U.S. and Germany to kind of uh, use that as a case study to understand um, shared issues, shared divisions in our societies, um, and also differences and ways that we can, as the Transatlantic Partnership, um, can work together to find solutions, um, find ways to bridge these divides, some, sometimes, you know, Germany or the U.S. does it better. And in some ways, sometimes there's ways where we can, you know, work together. So um, we went to Akron in 2019. Um, so three Akron years ago. Akron, Akron, Ohio. Ohio. For those yes. not,
0: yeah. might not be familiar. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, three years ago, we went to Akron, Ohio um, to do the first part of our project. And then three years later, we were finally able to reconvene. Year um, one of the project, um, and look at these issues in Chemnitz. Okay, in
0: Chemnitz, in the state of Saxony, and so so. What I thought we would do t- today is to to talk a little bit about what um, our, uh, our group of mostly young leaders, I would I uh, think it's fair to say, uh, experienced in Chemnitz um, uh, over a week of uh, you know discussions with. Political leaders, social um, uh, activists, uh, and people, uh, experts on the economy and um, the the state, all the states of affairs uh, in Chemnitz. So, um, I guess where I would start is Chemnitz. Uh, maybe not well known in the United States, but it's in the southeastern corner of Germany. Also, I would say a structurally, uh, economically uh, weak part of Germany, but. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, about the economy uh, in, in Chemnitz and around?
1: All right. Yeah, um, I think it's a good point to touch upon the fact that it's economic, or as you mentioned it, Jeff, um, it's economically um, the weaker or located at the weaker economic part of Germany. It wasn't like that historically seen. So an important thing about Chemnitz is that during the, socialist era, um, it, was, it had a flourishing industry, especially in the automotive and um, technical sector. Um, at least that's what our, a lot of our interview partners stated out and um, it's important to, yeah, I think to, to make that point. Um, but Chemnitz lost heavily during the reunification. So during the vended side, a lot of industry moved from east to west, and this was also really characteristic for the city of Chemnitz. Um, A heavy decline in industry started, which brought, of course, a lot of unemployment, and also led to a decline in, uh, in the population. So a lot of people from Chemnitz or from Saxony as well, Um, Moved from the East to the West because of better work opportunities, um, because of a more promising lifestyle. And um, that shows also a little bit in the city picture. And also when you were talking to um, our interview partners, because a lot of them stated out that this economic frustration also led to um, xenophobia, to political um, division. Um, Yeah. Okay. Maybe so much on that point.
0: Yeah. I think we'll come back to the political side of this, yeah. or um, as we as we go through. Uh, any anything else uh, that uh, that that I think we need to keep in mind? One thing that strikes me, of course, um, is Chemnitz uh, is is a place of transitions, uh, also in its name. Uh, during the GDR period, Chemnitz was known as Karl Marx Stadt. Um, although, as far as I know, Karl Marx never uh, actually uh, lived or. Or worked or had any presence there, but um, so this is this. But I think this exemplifies the the kind of deep changes for people who uh, who come from Chemnitz that they've seen over over their lifetimes. Um, And anything else that uh, jumps out uh, at you about the the economic uh, uh, transition and structure of Chemnitz that uh, you want to highlight?
2: I think from an economic and a social and a social factor, I think. From it, from 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 the, the beginning of Chemnitz history, it was a, it was a place of industry, right? Um, we went on this beautiful tour around the the town center, and we just we we saw the train we, and we could see the transitions in buildings and how some buildings had been taken down during the GDR had been blown up during the the Second World War and how there was a constant struggle to rejuvenate the city from day one, right? And so thinking about that from a social context, you can see that. Because um, I'm a type of person who likes to walk around a lot. so you can see that the folks who live in Chemnitz have a lot of pride in in, in the city um, to the to the degree where they can spot newcomers right away and the, the honest question is so why are you in Chemnitz of all places? You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. so there is a history of the struggle as well as industry because there's there was um, huge divestment um, after the GDR, but then also even during what our tour guide um, told us was that there were, although there were huge booms in industry, particularly in automotive, other forms of manufacturing had been taken away from. And so jobs were still lost during the GDR because resources were reallocated. And so it seems to me in terms of economic identity, Chemnitz, for many reasons throughout history, was prevented from really delving into one form of of fabrication. And so Mm -hmm. that constant state of flux also made it difficult for folks to feel um, stable in their identity, much like how they had a name change in the nineties, which was brought on after the name change had happened without the consent of the people. Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Maybe um, one point that I would like to add, Uh, we had the chance to talk to the press officer of the city of Chemnitz, which was also really interesting um, from talking about economic, He told us actually that there are a lot of efforts currently going on to bring a new business or a new kind of business to the the city of Chemnitz, which is basically that they try to create a startup culture, um, which sounds kind of off, I think, thinking in the historical way of sense, where Chemnitz comes from. Um, But it's also really interesting because they tried to adapt this more, I would say, Berlin lifestyle in Chemnitz by providing um, cheap office space, cheap uh, housing opportunities for people that are willing to come to the city. Um, we, We weren't really sure how successful those efforts were at the end because I think that there's no data on it. Um, but it was really interesting to see that the city is really trying to, um, yeah, to get in touch with a more new wave of economy.
0: And, and I think in a way, if you compare Chemnitz to the, the other um, large cities in, in Saxony, uh, Dresden, and especially Leipzig, um, uh, there are, those are two that uh, have been relative bright spots, I would say, in the, in the economic uh, history of post uh, reunification Germany. Um, so uh, Chemnitz is a bit of an outlier, um, uh, and and uh, therefore uh, efforts underway to try to catch uh, catch up in that in that regard. Exactly. So uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, what this. You know, there there is no economic transformation that doesn't have political phenomena associated with it. And and one of the ways Chemnitz has got has come across the uh, the the radar screens or the consciousness of people in other parts of Germany and outside of Germany um, has been for the problem of, of right wing um, extremism uh, and support for far right uh, politics. So um, can can let's talk a little bit more um, about that. Where where uh, where do you uh, where do you see Um, see this in in the
2: politics of of cabinets. Monday evenings at 6pm on the dot every week there is a public demonstration of uh, anti-mask supporters um, who get together with a bunch of beer bottles and organize in about 100 people in number and march to the center of town. Um, We were put onto that by the press officer and myself and a couple uh, fellows were interested in seeing it but quickly um changed tactic once we were confronted because um what we were also made aware of was that um so in the city council 25 of the city council of chemnitz belongs to the afd right and so some of those councils- listeners, sorry sorry dylan
0: for listeners out there the far right alternative for germany party um uh, which uh, just to make sure people know the name go ahead
2: No, I appreciate that. And so those same council members are oftentimes the ones organizing and or participating in these anti-mask protests. And so on the political side, you see um, a large social influence of politics. And usually the rhetoric that we discussed that really fuels the AFD's popularity centers on economic disparity and that economic disparity being um, uh targeted at or finding a blame in um recent immigrants or refugees um to the city and so you saw um a conflating of the issue of immigration as a cause of economic disparity and a lack of well-paying jobs which we found evidence that it was not the case that well-paying jobs were going to recent immigrants except for ukrainians um in some cases but um it was really visceral you know and on the flip side of that, you also, you know, the folks that we talked to today, the AFD sympathizers were very quick to say that doesn't define Chemnitz. And so you see this political struggle for identity, right? Uh, the AFD is alive and well here, but they do not identify it. They do not identify us. They do not define Chemnitz. Um, but unfortunately in the media, that's not what we see we see we, we see AFD we see anti-immigrant rhetoric we hear of the 2018 um, tragedy where there is a life lost in a struggle between a longtime resident of Germany and um, a recent refugee from Syria and so that continues to be the defining tone of the city on the political spectrum from what we were what we were told
0: mm-hmm. and and I think um, it's also in, you know worth uh, pointing out that the, you know, the AFD and you if you look at far-right um, politics in Germany, increasingly, um, the the AFD in its in its approach uh, to politics is becoming an Eastern German party. Now, the population of Western Germany is much larger, and so the AFD still gets more votes in Western Germany than it does in Eastern Germany, but the proportions um, are striking. So if, if, uh, if I look at the Bundestag election, uh, last fall, so you know, just about six months ago, the AFD um, got got the most um, support um, of any party uh, in the state of Saxony. Uh, about twenty five percent of the votes in um, in Saxony went uh, went to the AFD, uh, and and so that is, I think, a demonstration of the ways in which the AFD's political influence is being concentrated. In Eastern German states, and Saxony is is perhaps the most striking example uh, of it. Um, uh, Elisaveta, further observations on uh, on how um, on how the political situation in Chemnitz I, maybe it reflects larger uh, trends in Germany, but in what cases in what ways do you see it as unique?
1: Yeah, I think it is actually unique because it it matches everything that we see in Saxony, but it doesn't match so much what we see in West. Uh, Germany or in the former West Germany cities and um, what was really striking is I think it was in the first day where the press officer of Canada came to us and said that um, we have the city council where 25% are AFD or even the more far right because also Freie Sachsen made it to the uh, city council which are even more extreme and in line with neo, not, uh, neo so, not, neo-Nazi ideas and narratives, um, even more than the IFD does. So, um, but I think what is important to mention is that we also witnessed a divide between the political situation um, that was was reported by numbers, so what we saw from the um, governmental side and also what the City Council reported, but also uh, the situation in Saxony overall. But there's also this really strong force um, from the more activist sector. And that was really great to see that there are so many people who really try to um, create a welcoming culture, to create a more appreciative environment towards uh, people with migrational background um, and refugees. And we visited the uh, Saxonian Refugee Council, Agia, which is an intercultural meet-up space. Uh, an educational space and also um, we witnessed uh, the idea of bringing people together in the club Mar Sigma, um, which is a cinema um, that had a project with refugees um, and they made a movie um, on the yeah different lifestyles that refugees lead in the city of chemnitz so they had that. Um, perspective of people and newcomers coming to the city and how they felt in the city, how they tried to build a new life in Chemnitz and I really enjoyed to see that so many people actually care and aren't really afraid of the political movements that are going on in the streets and are really noticeable. Um, in I think that's more, more characteristic for the eastern part of Germany, not for Germany at all, because I honestly never saw something like that happening on Hanoveranian streets, that people went through the city with anti-mask um, perils and anti-migrant chants. Uh, sh- so um, yeah, so there, there seems to be a divide between the people that are really trying to create a more welcoming culture and people that actively fight against it. Um, yeah.
2: And it seems like the, that divide, one of the thing, the big thing that we talked about with the press officer and during our, um, end of day or beginning of day discussions was how do we bridge that divide? Because resting at polar opposites is, is, has historically not really done much for progress, right? Um, mm-hmm. and so one of the biggest things that we talked about, and when we went to the cinema, one thing that was really quite remarkable was that, um, in the cinema with this film project, there was a desire to bridge gaps between young folks and older generations, particularly older generations of people that had been in Germany for gen- generations and generations, and young people that were recent immigrants or migrants or refugees to the country. So that the different narratives of being could be compared and contrasted and to arrive at a result that showed that difference does not, ha- does not have to mean exclusivity. And so how do we get to a spot where we recognize each other's differences and maybe even celebrate them and reach a state where we can live together even if we don't agree on everything, but we can share some type of common values of camaraderie or whatever the case may be well, to, for the betterment of the country. And every person we talked to um, had, the same, had the same answer and we asked, okay, how do we you know, start the conversation? They said, I don't know. I don't know those guys, they're Nazis, i don't know, you know, and you know fair enough it's it's okay not to know um but that's kind of where what we're continuing to wrestle with in in this ongoing project with a s c g s is how do we go from polarization to conversation to action, and conversation has to be recognized as a form of action as well, right you have to start somewhere
0: yeah and there's there is a there's this Tension—it's um, not mutually exclusive, but there is this tension between um, trying to exclude perspectives and voices that you consider unacceptable in an open democratic society, um, and yet seeking um, this kind of uh, dialogue. Um, and so, I, I'm curious to hear more uh, more about that from uh, from either you, Dylan, or you, Elizabetha. Um, Where do you where do you stand as you finish um, this project um, and with a sense of of opportunity or optimism uh, or maybe not uh, on how to how to bridge those gaps?
2: I mean, for me, um, what's really unique about this particular fellowship is that Unfortunately, but fortunately, we've been together for two years now. This was supposed to be a one year, you know, one and done, say hey in Akron, say hey in Chemnitz and goodbye. But over the course of the pandemic, we were also intentional about setting up regulars, you know, not regular, but periodic Zoom meetings. And so this cohort of wonderful people has really formed a pretty strong bond, I think, and a commitment to continuing this work. And so to answer the question of like, how do we, you know, work toward an openly democratic society while also working against you know, dehumanizing perspectives. From a social work perspective, um, I know that no matter how many conversations you have, there are gonna be people that don't like me, for example, because of the color of my skin or where I come from or the languages I speak or whatever. But and that's all right. But if they don't like me, but they don't try to exclude me from things and they don't openly try to stop me from voting or whatever the case may be, Well, then, you know, I'm cool with living with them, right? But I think the issue is that um, having those types of conversations, you know, with people that might dehumanize me in a way is not something that a lot of people are willing to do because that's traumatizing. It's scary. But I think, and that's, that's why I think before any type of sweeping policy change happens, you have to have people talk about why they don't mess with other people. Mm-hmm. You know, and to get it out there and to yeah. really get down to the nitty gritty of where conspiracy theories are coming from, why they feel that way, because at the at the crux and at the center of every type of theory is, is, is a need. So what is the need that people are feeling that makes them feel like they have to scapegoat one person, one group or the other? And when we identify that need and if we can come up with ways to meet those needs, as long as they're not dehumanizing to other people, there's always a <laughs> caveat. Um, then I think we have a process. But if we rest in this statement, in the state of, I don't agree with what you're saying, I think you're a monster, so I'm not gonna, I'm just gonna exclude you from the conversation, that only allows things to further fester. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth?
1: Yeah, I think what became very visible to me throughout the whole process of our project um, was that even though we seem geographically so far apart the United States and also Germany, is that we are connected through so many similarities. And I think that they are definitely overweighting the differences between, because even looking at those um, sister cities, Akron and Chemnitz, I think that we witnessed there are much more similarities in terms of the problems that they need to face, that they're currently facing already, and that they definitely have to combat throughout the next 10 to 20 years um, if they want to sustain their cities, sustain their population and also stay attractive cities for Younger people and not just the aging population that what pointed out, especially in Chemnitz is one big problem that the whole city is starting to aging really fast and um, no newcomers are actually coming in. But there are still these similar solutions to those problems that seems quite clear to I think people from the outside, because uh, we talked so much so much to um, organizations that work with refugees and that bring really well-educated refugees to stay in the city because they make the life there a little bit more attractive with their work. And I think that both cities, Akron and Chemnitz, desperately need uh, need, need those people, need those new perspectives, and need those synergies that could be created with them. But so far, they don't manage to create that... Yeah, that synergy yet. They're not there yet, but I'm quite optimistic that, um, yeah, it will become more and more, um, yeah, a productive environment.
0: So, so, Liz, where do things go from here?
3: Well, if you're further interested in this project, in particular in the Akron Chemnitz, um, connection. Um, our participants, not just Lisa and Dylan, but the rest of the cohort, will be putting together a story map that um, will put together all of our all of our conversations in in Akron and Chemnitz. Um, talk about more in depth about the shared problems um, and give a, a readout of of where where we can go forward. And um, Lisa and Dylan also will be writing an article for the AICGS website. So keep your eyes peeled for that as well.
0: All right. well, uh, I'm so delighted that after uh, such a long um, uh, interruption that uh, that this group whom I had the, the pleasure to meet in, uh, in Akron uh, two and a half years ago, um, has been able to uh, to continue their their work together in person. Uh, and uh, this is a very, Uh, exciting project. Uh, We are also doing other... uh, Liz, can you tell our listeners about the other sister cities that we're um, working with in this project?
3: Yes, so um, immediately after our Chemnitz uh, week, uh, Susanna and I took a train to the Virgebiet in western Germany and we convened the first meeting of our second cohort um, we met in Dortmund and we'll be meeting in June in Buffalo. And we also just um, completed the application process for the third year, which will be um, Glendale, Arizona, and Memmingen, Bavaria.
0: Okay, so um, getting uh, bringing together people from across Germany, across the United States uh, to look at uh, some of the most uh, difficult issues that we confront as, um, as, as open democratic societies with uh, you know, very broad and sometimes contentious politics. So uh, really delighted uh, to be uh, part of this project with all of you. And thanks so much uh, to Elizaveta and uh, Dylan for sharing your time and your observations with us. And thanks to Liz for leading this project forward. Um, and we we'll look forward to have all of our listeners with us again on the next edition of the Sidecast. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org, or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Hahn.